Welcome to PRN, Pause, Renew, Next, a podcast about soul care, scripture, and stories of faith. I'm Jenny Detweiler, and I'm so glad you're here. Friends, we are living in some weird and uncomfortable times, and I hope you're all surviving your social distancing experiences. It seems timely that today's guest, Stephanie Lobdell, shares about her experiences with anxiety and depression. I am very excited about this conversation. I think it will resonate for many of you, and I hope you come away from it encouraged. Stephanie is a wife and mom of two children. She is the chaplain or campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University, and she's a writer. Her first book, Signs of Life, Resurrecting Hope from Ordinary Losses, was published not that long ago, and we talk about some of the stories within it in this episode. Before we start, I just want to stop and say thank you to my faithful listeners who've rated, reviewed, or shared this podcast. I love to hear your feedback and so appreciate your comments and messages. They're really encouraging to me. The way this podcast is found by new people is through you. So if you like what you hear, pass it on. Well, with that, let's jump into the podcast episode. Well, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Stephanie Lobdell. Um, I'm married to Tommy Lobdell. We have two kids, Josephine and Jack, and I am a campus pastor at a university in rural Ohio. Awesome. So I want to talk to you about a lot of things today on this episode, Um, but the main thing we're going to talk about is your book, Signs of Life. One of the things that I really appreciated as I read through it was how you shared a lot of your own personal struggles throughout the book. Yeah. And... Like each chapter was kind of about a little death that you've experienced, like we all do in normal life, but also how the Lord is bringing resurrection out of that. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I would love to start kind of talking about how you have dealt with depression and anxiety, because that's something that a lot of people deal with right now, I think, especially. Would you mind sharing some about your experiences with anxiety and depression? Yeah, for sure. Uh, So I was diagnosed with um, depression, anxiety when I was a junior in college. Um, It was a pretty, a pretty disruptive diagnosis. I knew I had been struggling, but really didn't recognize it as mental illness, which is so almost ridiculous because I have mental illness in my family. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. And yet it managed to be this extraordinary surprise to me. Um, And it was very disruptive because I felt like I was broken um, in a way that seemed to be beyond repair that I wasn't lovable or worthy of love. And also that I just wasn't worthy of doing the task to which I felt God had called me, which for me was vocational ministry, pastoral ministry or ministry overseas and various things like that. And it really felt like I had been disqualified, like who had ever heard of a depressed pastor or a depressed missionary? Because at that point in my life, I had never heard of that. So for me, it was this coming to terms with this illness, but also coming to terms with what did that mean for my vocation and my identity? Yeah. Can you, if you don't mind, can you talk about what depression feels like for you, like what you experience? For sure. Um, At that time, the best way I could describe depression was um, it felt like I was running in chest deep water. Um, Technically, you can do that only for a limited period of time because you will will run out of energy and you will just go kaput. Um, I'm very driven, very much an achiever, that kind of thing. And so I would just keep going and keep going, even though it was getting harder and harder for me to work up the energy to do those things. I would look to the future and find virtually nothing that gave me hope or made me feel excited. And so it seemed like the everyday ordinary tasks were becoming more and more difficult. And 
it was as if the light was just kind of contracting. Um, and I could see less and less and less and just became more focused on that feeling of despair and of emptiness and really yeah. feeling pretty out of control of my own emotions, feeling like I was, the emotions were controlling me versus me having the ability to control them. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I think, cause I know, I know as a counselor, there are certain qualifications for what depression is, looks like or feels like. But for each person, it can be slightly different. And so I really thought you did a great job in your book of being able to write that and give a mental imagery for what that felt like for you. Yeah. There was a, there was a story that you talk about in your yeah. book about going and talking to your professor. And I thought that was really powerful. Would you share yeah, that? For sure. So I had just been diagnosed like literally the day before and they had sent me home with medication. And I just was, I was a basket case because I felt like this pill was so symbolic of this failure of my inadequacy. And basically this was my, my ticket out of the ministry program is what it felt like. So I go to class the next day and I'm sitting in the foyer of the lobby, just kind of waiting for class to start. And my professor comes up to me and says, Hey, how you doing? And I had every intention of telling him nothing, telling him zero things about the circumstance. Um, but instead I felt it fell apart and just started crying in the foyer and just said, yeah, well, uh, I was diagnosed with depression. I was put on meds. And the professor says to me, oh, really? Me too. And immediately just leans into this self-disclosure. And I was shocked, completely shocked. And literally in my head, I thought to myself, does anyone know? <laughs> because how are you a professor? How are you a pastor? And he said, and this has completely changed the narrative for me for the rest of my life and continues to change the narrative when I have to face this again. He said, every morning I find myself saying, as I take this pill, this pill today is God's means of grace to me. And for me, that completely uh, just flipped the script entirely. Um, it wasn't no, like, this pill didn't have to be symbolic of failure, but could be rather be, uh, be a symbol of God's love. Um, God reaching out through me through this ordinary means of grace that is medicine to say, I love you. I see you. I see your suffering and I'm meeting you in that space. Yeah, that's really powerful. The story and the model of that. I love that so much. Um, how do you think that experiencing that and being with a professor who is that open and vulnerable with you has changed how you minister to other people? Oh, drastically, drastically. I think before I very much wanted to have this image of having it all together, being the one that people could trust and the one people could turn to and, um, and the stuff that I would struggle with. Um, I didn't, maybe I would be honest in surface level ways, you know, just for like low level connection. But like when it comes to true, deep vulnerability that, that really involves a risk, that wasn't something I was remotely interested in or really knew how to do. But watching someone um, being able to bear their soul to me in that way, to be vulnerable in a very healthy, very appropriate way, not in like, a, I'm going to air all my trash out, but here's this thing that I've been dealing with. Um, and he came to me not because he needed my support, but he wanted to disclose. So um, it taught me so much about what it looks like to be vulnerable, to share something I'm struggling with, but also to share it in a way that is beneficial and can be edifying and can be um, bring people together versus looking to the wrong places for support. So it's taught me about um, healthy vulnerability, truly. So tell me how exactly you came about writing this book. Like, did that drop in your lap or did you just set out that, you, that God told you to do it? Or Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of funny story because it does relate to my depression. I had just gone through really dramatic treatment called TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And it just awoke, it just awoke in me um, some things that had been dormant for a very long time, including just deep, deep wells of emotion that I hadn't been able to dip into for years. 
And so as a part of that, I wrote this little essay called A Love Letter to My Church. And it just was a letter about how they had cared for me during that treatment, bringing me meals and stuff like that. Well, I dropped that letter on social media and a couple of my friends shared it. And um, an editor from Christianity Today, one of their online resources, reached out to me and said, hey, would you be willing to write some queries for me someday? And I was like, sure. What's a query? (laughs) (laughs) which is essentially just like a, a a document that says, Hey, I want to write about this topic. This is what I'll say. And you propose it. It's like a proposal. So that was my first foray into writing. So that year I was just published on a variety of different online platforms, a couple written platforms as well. Um, that went just really, really well. And then by December of that year, so 12 months from when I wrote the love letter to, so about 11 months later, um, I received an email from a, a book editor that said, it's like an acquisitions editor that said, hey, I think there might be a book in you. Can we talk? And in my head, I was thinking, I think you have the wrong email. Like, I don't think there is a book in me. There are several short articles, but that is about it, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's it was, quite something to be told. Right? And so I didn't really, I, I waited a few days and I emailed her back and we had a phone call. And she said, is there any like theme in your life that continues to emerge that you feel like maybe God has done something? And so I said, well, there is this theme of, of, of resurrection that just keeps emerging in my mind of, of God's resurrection power at work, not just in, you know, forgiveness of our sins or, you know, what happens in the end, you know, the last days, but actually now like bearing, um, change here amongst us even now. And she goes, well, why don't you explore that a little bit? We'll talk after Christmas. So I began to just think, what are, where had I seen God's resurrection in my life? And I realized that it was so very ordinary. I had not ever had a miscarriage. I'd never been abused. I'd never been um, mistreated, you know, by my husband or, I mean, that kind of thing. I didn't have this big dramatic tale to tell. I never had cancer or anything, but I had all these ordinary losses along the way, like the loss of the future. I thought I had planned out the loss of the zeal that I had when I went through my first kind of deconstruction of faith experience, the, the loss or the loss of the expectations I had as a woman in ministry going in, just being so affirmed and loved by my professors and then just being kind of ravaged by the local church. Um, expectations of revival, like pouring myself into a congregation and just expecting things to grow and work. And I'm having to surrender some, um, some idols along the way. So I came to her and I just said, Hey, I feel like this is the message that I want to say is that, you know, we all experience like ordinary deaths, things that seem maybe not even worthy of writing home about. And yet somehow there's these, these signs of life. And I didn't even have the language of signs of life yet at that point, but of God's resurrection power, what does the resurrection power actually have to say to the ordinary losses of our life? The ordinary things that that don't come to fruition, the plans that are changed, the future that shattered, the the things that just don't go the way we expect. And does God meet us in that space? And what what new life does he bring forth from what feels like death? Yeah. And so it came about, how long did it take you to write it? I wrote the book proposal in the first, the intro in the chat, first chapter that spring, that by March. And then that's when they gave me the official contract. And I submitted my final book my draft in December. So it was about from when she first called me to when I submitted the draft was 12 months. Wow. That's pretty fast. I don't know. Like I've never done it before. So I'm like, <laughs> maybe sure. Yeah. Uh, it seems fast to me. Yeah. There Way you go. to go. Um, there were a couple of chapters. I mean, I honestly, I read the whole book. I liked it all, but there were a couple of chapters that really stood out to me. And this podcast is for all people, but primarily women, I would say. Um, and so you had a chapter about beauty and also a chapter about image, which are kind of a big deal for all people, but especially for women. And so I really loved how you handled that. And you talked about how people perceive you specifically and how, how hard that that has been for you. 
Can you talk about, which we kind of already did with your professor, but can you talk about how you find yourself practicing vulnerability and managing your image now, as opposed to how you might have previously? Yeah, I think I went through um, some seasons where I felt like vulnerability was just um, was just spilling all the stuff, right? Not necessarily from, not necessarily <laughs> yeah. from the pulpit. Not, I never did it from the pulpit. Um, there were times I talked about my struggle from the pulpit, but not in a messy way. But um, I remember times talking with some of my staff about it in a way that um, I look back now and I think I could have done that differently um, because it was pretty messy. And I think it made it feel like working for me as their leader um, or one of their leaders, my husband and I co-pastored, made me an unsafe person because they're like, oh, she has her own stuff. I don't want to bring this to her. And I have regrets about that. Like, I think that was not a healthy use of vulnerability because it made me an unsafe person to come to in terms of um, needing leadership. Um, But now in my new position, something I've been really trying to steward is what does it look like to be vulnerable, to be honest about my struggle, but not, but look to the right places for my comfort and support. So I've kind of, the Lord has blessed us with this amazing circle of friends here in this new new place where we're at in Ohio. And they're the people to whom I go for care and concern and support and love and prayer. And my staff, I share with them and I, um, I love them and I'm honest with them about what I'm struggling with, but I don't necessarily expect them to bear that emotional load for me in the way that I would my husband or my peers or my, my, my circle of friends. So I'm learning what it means to be vulnerable um, while I am learning also to build appropriate systems of support around me that enable me to do my job well um, and with full honesty, but also preserving the fact that I need to be able to lead them well and for them to be able to trust me. So that's something I'm still learning and navigating. Yeah, I think that's a lifelong thing. It seems to me that it would be for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. When possible, not in every podcast, but I love to talk about the Enneagram. I don't think that's new for my listeners. Yeah. Um, And that is not something that you expressly wrote about in your book, but you kind of wrote it between the lines, I feel like, especially in the chapter about image. 100%. Would (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to talk about your Enneagram number and how that affects your outlook on image? Well, I would first like to say when I found out that I am a Enneagram, um, I mostly deeply identify, I guess I like to say it that way, identify with a, a three, with a four yeah. wi- with a four wing. And when I first learned that I was most likely a three and I listened to, I mainly learned about it through podcasts and through reading books. And then I did some tests. Um, when I first heard a podcast describing the Enneagram three, I started just yelling. I'm like, that's not true. Whatever. <laughs> and then I was like, but it's so true. It's the truest. And I felt so exposed. And honestly, that's how you know that's your number is not like, oh, that number is awesome. I'm that number. No, the number that makes you want to crawl in a hole with humiliation. That's your number. You're welcome. Um, Except seven. I like it. Well, seven, whatever. Get over yourself, seven. It's fine. Um, So number three um, is very image oriented, wanting to be successful, but not just wanting to be successful, but wanting to be perceived as successful and have this certain image that you cultivate. Um, Being humiliated or embarrassed or being exposed is extremely, extremely painful and can result in some really sinful coping mechanisms of, of pride and of defensiveness and arrogance that really is a shell for um, a pretty fragile little heart. And so, um, I was really wrestling with that and coming to grips with that experience in me um, as I was writing the book. And so that's why that chapter was the very last chapter was because that's where the Lord brought me. By the end of the, the book, that's where the Lord had taken me was to that place of image and of, of God breaking down this image I had constructed 
to say, this is not who you are. All of this stuff, this is not who you are. Who you are is, is my beloved. You are my beloved. And I kind of tell the story of Jacob and how his name has changed from, you know, being this deceiver. Um, and God, um, when the wrestle, the angel comes to wrestle him, says, this is not who you are. This is not who you're going to be known as anymore. Breaking down this image of, I'm going to proceed, you know, portray myself in this particular way. And he calls him, you are now Israel, the one who wrestles you have, because you have wrestled with God. And it's not to say that now, Jacob, you are this easygoing, uh, lucky, um, calm, kind, no ambition person, but rather you're one who has wrestled with God and you will wrestle, but now you will wrestle not for your own, for your own benefit and your own success, but to be a part of what I'm actually doing through your family. And that is to make them a vehicle of redemption for the world. And so just as being renamed, um, remembering my baptism, remembering that I am not Stephanie, I am first and foremost, I am Christian. Um, and that is who has named me. And I've been marked and sealed as Christ's own forever. And so being reminded of my identity in Christ is what has given me the freedom to crawl out from underneath that really, that facade, that, that false image that I had portrayed for so very long. Um, and it was kind of like crawling out with baby skin because then you feel so sensitive and so tender. Um, but the Lord's love just binds you up, just binds you up so faithfully. Um, it has allowed me to heal and to move into a much healthier, much, much healthier space. Yeah. Well, threes are very driven and that actually can be a good thing. They have a lot of energy. Yes. I, yeah. So in, in ministry, and especially as a leader, that probably serves you well in a lot of ways too. So it I, does. I love I, that. I will say that I can sometimes lead toward the, toward workaholism. Uh, I just, I love, <laughs> I, I love to work. I love yeah. to work. Um, but the challenge is sometimes I don't know how to rest well. So that's something right. that is one of my kind of growth points this year is what does it look like to rest well and to release the anxiety that comes with work sometimes the need to constantly be producing like that's idolatry and so what does it look like to release that and to trust that that God is is indeed at work I am not the first mover or the starter of fires God is yeah okay well that broke me down into two two separate questions one yeah. What are you doing right now for work? You're a campus pastor? Yeah, so I'm a chaplain. So we call it okay. campus pastor because we really want to emphasize that I'm the shepherd of the community. Um, but it's essentially the chaplain of the university. So I have about 1,400 undergrad students and then faculty and plus faculty and staff that um, I, I do the chapel programming. So they have chapel every week, three times a week. There's small groups and mentoring groups. Um, justice project, uh, community service. So all the spiritual formation of the community falls under my office, including some cross-cultural, um, cross-cultural trips. Yeah. Well, there's a lot there. Uh, so much. So you could be here. busy all the time if you wanted to be, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I've only been here uh, eight months, almost nine oh, okay. months. And so I'm very new to the role. So I'm just constantly learning. And the other half of my question was about the resting well, which leads me to ask, in this podcast, I focus a lot on soul care. Yeah. And I'm wondering, what are some of the ways that you practice self-care and tend to your own inner life? Because you have yeah. a lot of things you juggle. It's true. So um, one of the things that I've been trying to do, um, it's hard sometimes to figure out if I'm going to take a rest day on Saturday or Sunday. Sometimes I do. And I think part of that has been my problem. If I can't take a whole day off, then it's not really a day off, you know? Um, when we were when <laughs> yeah. we were in the local church, my husband and I both had Fridays off and our kids were in school. So that meant we had five solid hours ish to just be the two of us and to truly rest, take a nap, whatever. Well, since I work here now Monday through Friday, I don't have kid free time to rest. And my kids are seven and three. Um, and so I've had to find like, what does it look creatively to look like to rest? Um, and I have to give myself permission for it to not look a certain way. Like it doesn't have to look like 
laying on the couch and sleeping. It doesn't have to look like a nap. It doesn't have to look like silence. It doesn't have to look like this all the time because that just sets me up for failure in terms of my expectations. So um, every day I try to, to take care of myself. I try to eat well. I try to move my body. I try to find a time to read something that's not necessarily work-related, something that I enjoy reading. And I try to just, this does not sound like rest to most people, but I try to t- take care of our house. So we moved into a new house. Um, I don't love it. It has some stuff that I don't love, but we're kind of working on some projects in it. Um, and something that is good for my own soul is to practice gratitude by, by loving what God has given me. And so that means, you know, cleaning the kitchen and getting out that new spring towel and putting out some new decorations and some things like that, that kind of cultivate a spirit of gratitude in me. So that's what I've been doing. I've been doing that lately. Well, that is productive, but I, I always feel like I'm always wrestling with those things too. That's part of the reason I asked. And I feel like there are things that take my energy. So on the weekend, yeah. especially on the Sabbath, I have to think like, is this work in my mind? Cause if it is work in my mind, I don't want to do it. But if it's yes. something that brings life to my soul, then I can do it. So if yes. I feel like working in my garden on Sunday, then I can work in my garden on Sunday if that's yes. something that I want to do. But it's and hard I, for me sometimes to know the difference. So Oh, totally. And I always ask myself, and I ask this of students as well, to help determine between self-care and self-indulgence. I ask them the question, when you're done with the activity, do you feel more tired or do you feel restored? So that's like a good for me, question. For me, like if I'm going to go watch Netflix for four hours, by the time I'm done, I will hate myself. Like I will truly (laughs) hate myself. And so like watching Netflix for four hours is not self-care. That's not good self-care for me. Uh, Maybe watching one or two episodes, that's okay. But like for me, I know that at the end of it, I will feel frustrated and unpleasant. So that for me is not a healthy rest pattern. Other people, it might be. So that's a question that I've used to kind of measure. Like, will I feel restored or will I feel worn out by this? Worn out, not like in the... Like there's that healthy, good kind of tired, like you went for a run or you dug in the garden you feel tired, but in that great, like restful way, um, or do you feel worn out, like souls depleted, weary, no naps going to cure this. And that probably wasn't a good Sabbath activity. Yes. I think that's a great question. That's a good takeaway for sure. Okay. In every podcast, I like to ask a couple of questions. And the first yeah. one is who is somebody in your life that inspires you? Um, I've been asked this question once or twice before, and so I'm, this is actually a duplicate answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. I'm very inspired by <laughs> my, okay. mom, by my mom. Um, she stayed at home most of her, most of my growing up years, stayed at home with stay home mom and loved me and invested in me and my brothers in a wonderful way. But when we were, um, when we left home, she just really felt this just hunger to go back to school to be a teacher. But because she'd been in uh, college so long before her degree, she had a degree in psychology, sociology, um, had been so long before she had to go back to undergrad to get a few other courses. So she's sitting in class is 40 something with like these 18 year olds in math classes she hates. And every day she would just show up so brave, so brave, got the classes done and then plowed her way through a master's of education. And finally, finally got a teaching job only to have my dad Uh, get a new job in Michigan and she has to get licensed in a new state. And yet here she is again, teaching and teaching and teaching and loves it. I mean, there are hard days, but I look at her and I just think you are so gifted and you have pursued what God has asked of you every step of the way. And that has changed over the years. But I look at her and I am so inspired by her passion and by her stick-to-itiveness in the midst of so many barriers. I'm just really proud that she's my mom and I look up to her in a lot of ways. I love that. That's awesome. And the other question I want to ask you is, what is your favorite scripture passage? And that can be just like a life one or it's, Mm -hmm. or one that has to do with your book. 
Yeah. Oh, that's a, oh man. Can I, if I could cite an entire more than book, <laughs> if I could cite an entire book, I would probably say the Psalms. Um, the Psalms has been a place where I found significant comfort from the Lord. Um, in a multitude of ways over the years, but one in particular, I'll just read actually, um, it's from Psalm 127. And this is good for a work, a little workaholic like me. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, unless the Lord guards the city, the guards keep watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives sleep to his beloved. And for me, that is eternally a good word. Um, I could work, I could work all day, every day, and it would never be enough. Um, but being reminded that uh, it is God, it is God who does the work in and through us. And so I can rest in peace at night, knowing that God is in fact doing that as I seek to respond in faithfulness. So for me, that is a good word. Oh, I really like that a lot. I have actually used that in myself with this podcast, trying to remind myself what's important because sometimes all the social media posts and everything, I can get distracted with that. So So, coming back to the point, uh, it's not me that's building this platform. (laughs) The Lord is building the house and that's okay. Yeah. That's good. Sometimes he's slow about it. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. But he does what he needs to do. Yeah. And talks to the people he needs to talk to. And that's important. That's wonderful. Okay. I wondered, are there any things that you wanted to share on this podcast that I didn't ask? No, I don't think so. You did a wonderful job. I love asking those questions and just talking honestly about mental health and particularly as it relates to faith. That's really important to me. Yeah. And I appreciate you being vulnerable enough to share that because I think we are becoming more open about it. And I love that story about your professor because I feel like that's huge. But especially in the church, I think it's been slow in coming. Oh, and sometimes, and sometimes it's not talked about maybe as well as it should be. So I'm really blessed that you're here to talk about it. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Stephanie for being on today's podcast. I loved connecting with you and so appreciated your honesty, vulnerability, and wisdom. I'll link to her book, Signs of Life, in today's show notes. If you'd like to learn more about Stephanie and what she's up to, you can visit her website, stephanielobdell.com, or follow her on Instagram or Twitter. What resonated with you from today's episode? I'd love to hear about it. Leave a comment under today's show notes or join the conversation on PRN Pause Renew Next's Facebook page. If you like this podcast, subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Well, that's all for today's podcast episode. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. The podcast. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Jesus.